Today we're going to be working through some heavy ideas, um, particularly with the second catechism. Um, the second catechism flows out of the end of the first catechism, but for, before we get there, I want to spend some time in the first one. I want to spend most of my time um, working, through, working with you through the second one because it's more of a lesser studied um, concept that we see in Scripture. Um, the first one we've actually dealt with quite a bit. Uh, going through the first few chapters of Matthew, we've talked much about the incarnation of Christ. Um, so we'll talk about it to refresh our memories, to refresh our uh, minds with some of these scripture passages. Um, but we're not going to sit the whole time on the first one, hopefully. If we do, well, we'll do the second one next week because I think it's something we need to talk about. Because um, it deals with Christ's priesthood, which we talked about more extensively last week. Um, so, I'll read the question of this first one, and then we'll read the answer together. What did the humiliation of the incarnation of Christ consist of? The humiliation of Christ's incarnation consisted in His being born in a low condition, born under the law, experiencing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing in the power of death for a time. Okay, so, what is incarnation? Is that a type of flower, or what is that? Incarnation. In the flesh. flesh. Taken on a body, right. Carnea, meaning flesh. Uh, We actually have a few words that utilize that same root. Carnal, just meaning fleshly. Uh, Carnival, celebration of flesh, or some people translate that celebration of life or humanity. Um, It it finds, I don't know what carnation means, but maybe that has something to do. It is a flower, but I don't know if if that's the same idea, the concept of that, but... Um, and we're going to, most of these passages, let's look at a couple of these passages. We're going to, we're just going to read through Isaiah 53 is really the prophetic beast concerning the incarnation of Christ. We'll spend most of our time on this catechism going through that chapter, but I do want to read a couple of these together. Look at, um, Isaiah, let's see, let's look at Galatians chapter four, just for the sake of time. We're not going to look at all of these. Um, Galatians 4, if somebody wants to read that, Galatians 4, 4, if somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, so that covers a couple aspects. So, sent forth the Son, so He sent Him to us. In what manner? Okay, so He was born from Mary as a child, God, deity, the fullness of Eternity wrapped up in his being. God is a spirit, but yet he submitted himself to humanity. That's where you see the direct incarnation. He also covers the concept here, born under the law. The lawmaker now subjects himself to the law so that he would keep the law in the flesh. Why would that be? Why would that be important? For us, in our place. Why did he have to be under the law in order to do it? Anybody know? Or had a thought? It was the I mean, that's just the way that the world has always been. Yeah. 
Right. But Grace hadn't come yet because he mm -hmm. hadn't completed the work. Yeah. Because, I mean, when he, it says at the beginning, when the fullness of time had come. Um, so basically what that means is God is completing a time frame and bringing Christ to be the kind of the capstone or the end of that time frame, um, bringing about a new era, a new covenant. As, yeah. But he had to be born under the law because the sacrifice for our sins had to be what kind of sacrifice? A perfect sacrifice. Because no, everybody was condemned because everybody had broken the law. And the, we, have, we had established prior that blood, the blood of bulls and goats don't completely obliterate our sins. So if somebody is going to come and be a proper sacrifice, that person is going to have to be perfect, absolutely perfect, and no human being could do that. Because we're all carnal in the sinful sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So somebody had to die for our sins who had kept the law through perfect obedience. No man could ever do that. No man had ever do that. We'd have thousands of years to prove that fact. Right. So he. So that's. So that's the uh, contrast there. That's called imputation. Okay. So the one who was completely righteous, who knew no sin, was treated as the unrighteous. And the unrighteous are now, by faith, treated as the completely righteous. That's where, I mean, in order for this imputation, this, tr this trade-off, so to speak, you know, perhaps you could think of the word imputation as a trade. Christ had righteousness. We had unrighteousness. Christ took our unrighteousness upon himself and paid the condemnation for it and, gave, and thereby left us being clean and righteous, giving us his righteousness. So now that God treats us as he would treat the perfect Christ. But this, none of this could have been possible if Christ did not come under the law so that he could, through obedience, be made perfect in, in that sense of perfection, uh, which was necessary for a sacrifice. Um, lo, let's see here. Let's someone read Philippians 2.8. So there we see again the obedience that came with Christ's suffering in his incarnation, even to the point of the cross. Look at Galatians 3.13. Someone read Galatians 3.13. Yeah, so there you go. That's the kind of the passage that Kirk had brought up. Cursed, he took the curse for us because he was cursed on a tree. And that comes from uh, Deuteronomy, I believe. Um, that, that part of the law, that everybody who hangs on a tree is cursed. So he bought us out of death and out of depravity. He, bought, he brought us out of the curse by, in the flesh, becoming a curse for us. As a spirit, he could not have taken the curse for us. He could not have been condemned by man um, if he was simply a spirit. So in his incarnation, in the humbling of himself, taking on body, uh, he's able to be our redeemer, 
which is something that all of the Old Testament looked forward to. Redemption was a major concept there. But let's look at Isaiah chapter 53. I'm not going to read every single portion here because we don't have time for that. But, but this, if you want to look at this yourself, this is, I, whenever I run, through, run, run into this chapter, I have to read it a few times because it's just um, an, an exciting and exhilarating chapter to read through because it so clearly and so profoundly talks about Christ and what he did for us. Um, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, it says, For he, talking about Jesus, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So in a sense, David was kind of like a prophecy of Jesus. Because remember when Samuel, God called Samuel to go choose the next king for Israel, what was the lineup? All of the brothers, that could have been a good choice. But then David, nobody even really considered David. They just kept him back with the sheep. There was nothing that anybody thought, well, Samuel, there's no reason Samuel would pick David. So let's just have him tend to the sheep while the rest of us go have this big meeting with prophet Samuel. Um, so in a sense, David is a display of the humiliation of Christ. There's no form or comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. And then we see in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So it was, you know, he was, he was so brutally massacred that the people couldn't even look upon him. It was such shame. You know, like, you know, back in the day, it was a shame to be, to have your nakedness revealed and people would hide their faces from you because it was a shame so people were hiding their faces from Jesus because of the shame that was brought upon him. And what does he say? Verse 4. Surely, in all of this, all along, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Okay, So in a sense, this, this, the way this language operates, it's basically saying he, he's doing this even though it's ours. He's taking all this shame upon himself, even though that shame rightfully belongs to us. That should be us that God is hiding his face from. But rather, we hid our face from God as he became a shame for us. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But what? He was, you know, in all of this wounding that he endured, who was he wounded for? Us. What does it say there? For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of that stuff that he endured in humility, he was doing it so that we didn't have to endure it because of his great love for us. Part of his humility. And in this catechism, when it's talking about humiliation, it's both the shamefulness of it and just the humble spirit, the meekness that Christ had in doing all of this for us when he didn't have to. Because all of this was rightfully ours to be condemned for. He could have just left it in our care and turned his eyes away from us. Um, but, he also did it for his intense love for his father. Yeah. yeah. I have come to do thy will, O God, Jesus said. And it was God's will. And, and, and um, let's see. I was just reading that verse earlier today. I can't remember. Somewhere in Romans. Um, but simply, Paul was talking about election and basically saying, yeah, it's because of God's good pleasure that he's done these things. You know, 
And all, there's a lot of different ways that if Paul knew why God chooses to save through election, he could have given us the reason. But all along, whenever he talks about it, he says something like, who are you to question God? Or it's just according to his good pleasure, according to the will of God. He never actually gives a reason for it, just for his good pleasure. Because that's what he delights in. It's his will. It's his love. It's his choosing. It's up to him. It's not up to us to try to understand it. Um, for the glory of God. Um, are there any? Is there any? Are there any questions or comments that anybody would like to make along these lines? Otherwise, we'll move on to the next catechism because we want to spend some time on that. Yeah. Because they've rejected it. They don't even read it. You know. Yeah, we're supposed to proclaim the whole counsel of God, but they don't take that seriously because they're not. They don't want to proclaim the parts that are a little bit incriminating, <laughs> in a sense, revealing their, the fact that they should be looking to the Messiah as Christ because it's right there and how he fulfilled all of this, but they don't want to have that conversation. And their pride says, we don't, we don't have to suffer. Right. Uh, can't, you know, mm-hmm. we don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In verse ten, well, I just have to read verse ten, and it said, "In all of this, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was, he has put him to grief, and then when you make, he says, when you make his soul an offering for sin." He shall see his days, or see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So in there you have the prophecy of the resurrection, because he's poured out in death. But yet, though dead, he still sees what his death produced. In order for him to see what his death produced, he had to be alive to see it. So in that we see a prophecy, though a shadowy one, of the fact that he would be brought back to life. And in doing so, um, he will see the righteousness that he poured out to all those who believe. And he goes on, Therefore I will divide him a portion of, with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And that's just something, we're not going to get to the second catechism today, because we have to talk about this. And, <laughs> um, and that's fine. Um, there's plenty of time to get through these, these teachings. Um, he was numbered with the transgressors. We're going to be talking this week about Blessed Are the Merciful on Sunday. Jesus, in order to be merciful in his great love, considered himself one of us, the transgressors, the condemnables, the gutter people. And we're going to talk about this Sunday in more depth in depth. Do we number ourselves with the people? Do we consider ourselves one with those around us? Or are we too good for the gutter people? Are we too good for the dirty, the filthy? We can't associate with the homeless. We can't associate with the prostitutes. We can't associate with those people. They're dirty. They put a blemish on our life. 
But yet here we see he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Not only did he consider himself, was he considered one of the transgressors, but he, because you can make the case, well, that's just what people thought. But then he says here, he made intercession for the transgressors. He came to their side. He fought for them. He fought for the transgressors. He fought for the dirty people. Us. He's talking about us. He's not talking about the guy down the road. He's not talking about that homeless guy in Kansas City or that child-beating, child deadbeat dad in the ghetto. He's talking about them, yes, but he's also talking about you. You're the transgressor that he fought for. And if you don't want to be considered one of those people, then you cut yourself off from Christ. You're not poor in spirit, like we talked about. You're not poor in spirit. Well, is that what the Jews are doing? That's what we're all doing. I mean, the Jews are doing that, in a sense. Are they cutting themselves off from God? Yeah. And isn't, isn't the Jews God's chosen people? And that's a, that's a really big question. That's, that's hard to yeah. comprehend. Right, it is hard. it's hard to comprehend, and it's a very big question. The Jews... Um, how can I describe this succinctly? We're kind of like the incubator people. He chose them to, he gave them his law. He gave them his favor. He chose them. He elected them as his people. Um, but as we, we see in scripture, I can't remember the passage off the top of my head. Maybe I wrote it down recently because I know I just read it. Let's see here. Mm. No. But it said he went to his own, and his yeah. own received him not. His own received him not. His own rejected him. But uh, the point I was trying to make is that everything in the Old Testament was a shadow of what was to come. Um, even the election of the nation of Israel was in one way pointing to when his election would include the entire world. Um, all, na- all people from all nations, he would be drawing his elect from. Um, and we see him acting it out throughout all of Israel's history. And we do see in Revelation, it, it, it looks, and I don't have the verse off the top of my head, where it does look like his favor will return to Israel and he will draw Israel back to himself. So we see that because it does say that God is not unfaithful to his promise. He still gave Israel an internal promise that he would love them and keep them. So he has not fully cast them off, even though they have, um, for all intents and purposes, fully cast him off. But there is still a future for Israel. But in the meantime, in Christ, all nations have been blessed. All nations have been brought into the the scope of God's favor. So we are all made one in Christ. And in Romans is actually uh, Paul's big um, manifesto for the oneness of the whole world in Christ. Um, that's the point he was making in Romans chapter 3, 20, verse 23, is that for all have sinned. And just before that, he's talking about there's no difference between Jews, between Jews and Gentiles. We've, we're all under sin. We're all condemned under sin. Jews and Gentiles alike, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by, um, here, what's the, uh, let me just read the exact wording here. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, for all have sinned, verse 23, for all have sinned 
Here, one second. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Okay, so it's not about the law anymore. Um, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. And when he says there is no difference, it means Jews and Gentiles both have the same opportunity. Both have the same condemnation and the same opportunity for righteousness. Because he, then he makes the case here. Why? How? Why is there no difference? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance God, his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, and so on and so forth he goes. Um, so the case he's making there is, Okay, so back in the day, the law was given to the Jews, but in these days, Christ is given to all. Okay, he was the Jews' Messiah, um, but that salvation, that justification that he achieved on that cross provided the favor and the election of God to all nations everywhere to fulfill the promise that God made to the Gentiles back, in, back to Abraham, in you all nations will be blessed. So in Abraham that seed of blessing, that seed of prophecy of Jesus Christ was planted. It took some time for the fullness of time to come so that the fullness of that prophecy and that promise would be revealed. And God is faithful to his promise. And there was always going to be a time when the Gentiles were to be brought in. In fact, even in, I was also just reading that, I think it was in Isaiah that I was reading that Israel was supposed to be kind of like a beckoning to the nations. Even back in the Old Testament, it was supposed to be that, that bug light that would draw in all the bugs. Anybody who would search for righteousness could see Israel and be drawn to it. Even back in the Old Testament, that was the case. But it's blown up and become much more huge in these days now that Christ has come. Um, so that it's not just the Jews' law, it's not just the Jews' God, it's the righteousness of Christ for all who believe. Um, so, a simple answer to your question is, the Jews were essentially the, uh, the preparation ground, preparing grounds for the fullness of time, for the Messiah to come and save all people everywhere um, who would come to Him by faith in Christ. Um, and they still have, a, the promise is still, the promise of God's favor upon them is still intact because God is not unfaithful to his promises. And he made them an eternal promise. So he hasn't completely forgotten them. Um, but in all of this, you know, Paul makes the case, in the Jews' rejection of Christ, um, God used that as a pathway to bless all the nations. So it was all... You know, in one big, in the wisdom of God, it was all in his foreknowledge, <laughs> um, according to his will and his pleasure, something that we'll never understand in this life. But, but yeah, the Jews were God's people, but now we're all, we're all given that opportunity to come under God's favor and, God's, and to receive God's righteousness. So, that's a... I mean, there's a, like I said, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, so it's, it's kind of hard to figure out. And not, that's not a bad thing for you to ask a question like that. It's such a huge question. It's, it's, it's natural for there to be a lot of questions about it because it's such a huge topic in Scripture. 
So I'm glad you asked it because it's something we should ask and we should be digging into. Um, but for more on that, reference the book of Romans. <laughs> and maybe we'll study that in more detail um, sometime in the future. Not just we might, we probably will because it is a, a big part of scripture. So. Something I've always, is this last part of verse 25. In what, or where, in Isaiah? Uh, in Romans or, 3. Yeah, in Romans 3, okay. Or we were just reading. Mm-hmm. And I've wondered this before. Yeah. But uh, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Yeah. We were actually going to talk about it in the second catechism. You can see on the bottom, to the, on the far right, Romans three twenty four to 26. We were going to talk about that. Um, just to give you a little uh, primer for next week. So when it says that in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, um, did the blood of bulls and goats completely obliterate the sins of the people? Mm-mm. So if that's the case, and God is a just God and punishes sin, well, then they should all be in hell, even though they were elect. But that's not the case because of this, in his forbearance, not in his unjust ignorance of their sin, but in his forbearance, God passed over those sins um, that were previously committed. And then you have to read that in conjunction with verse 26 to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness so that he might be the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And next week we'll talk about that's something that Christ did in that period between his death and his resurrection. Because you wonder, what, where was Christ's soul? <laughs> and what was he doing? Well, he was down in the depths of the earth proclaiming the gospel to those who were waiting for salvation. The, full, the final obliteration of all of their sins that were not completely done away with through the sacrifices of blood of bulls and goats. Because um, sin, because he, he was punished for their sins too. Um, so we'll talk about that more in depth next week. But that's essentially part of that conversation. His divine forbearance, he passed over the sins committed by people who are still trying to follow the law, seeking the reconciliation of Israel, seeking the, the final consummation of his, his will with his people, um, but yet did not live until the day Christ came and died and provided the full um, justification and full righteousness. Um, so those people waited, in a, and we'll talk about this more. Their, their souls were kept until Christ died for their sins, and then he went and received them and led the captives out of their captivity. <laughs> so does that give you enough to make your mind go crazy this week? <laughs> um, so well, our time is up. Are there any questions, any comments that anybody wants to bring out that we can discuss while we're on topic? I don't want to cut anybody off. Just on verse 10, when it talked about the Lord, it pleased him to crush him. Yeah. Um, it, I guess, from my understanding, it didn't make him happy that he crucified his son, but making a way where there was no way to have fellowship with his chosen people that he had to provide yeah. and knowing that his son was faithful and obedient to fulfill that, yeah. that that made a way that he could have fellowship with his chosen people. Yeah. And you know, even in the Old Testament, God says, you are his treasure. Talking about his chosen people. Yeah. You are his treasure. 
And in this, it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Because in doing so, he is shoveling in his treasure. He is bringing in his treasure. He is claiming what is rightfully his for all eternity. So yeah, Christ had to be crushed. That was the plan all even before Adam and Eve were created. But like you said, it wasn't that he was pleased in the act of crushing Christ, but it, was, it pleased him that in doing so, he was bringing many sons into glory. So yeah. Yeah, right. Because of that, because of our sin, because of our self-inflicted condemnation, and God is going to these great lengths to reconcile us, to bring us back into fellowship with Him, into that love relationship that He created us for. So, anything else? All right.